First Peter chapter three, beginning in verse one, Peter writes, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. The epistle of Peter broadly covers the themes of God's grace in salvation, beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. And then it continues with God's grace and submission in chapter 2, verse 11, again, all the way to chapter 3, verse 12. And then it will continue with God's grace in suffering in chapter 3, verse 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. And Peter has already addressed the, ins- the issue of submission to authorities and human institutions in verses 11 through 17 in chapter 2. Submission by slaves to masters or what we might even call employers to employees in chapter 2 verses 18 through 25. And now Peter will address the issue of submission in the home. And that will be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This morning, we'll look at verses 1 through 6. Next week, we'll look at verse 7. Later in the chapter, Peter deals with the issue of submission in the church in verses 8 through 12. In this particular passage, Peter will paint a picture of the wife as the heart of the home in verses 1 through 6. And will address the issue of the wife's attitude in verses 1 and 2, attire in verses 3 and 4. And then he'll draw an illustration from history, one particular wife, Sarah's attainment in verses 5 and 6. And so in verse 1, Paul Peter writes, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. In literature, a writer will typically address an audience. And in this instance, the audience are wives. Now, this doesn't mean that men cannot benefit from what's being said in the passage. You know, it's, it, it shocks me and amazes me how some men who know so very little bit about the Bible seem to have this one memorized. And you may think it's strange that Peter's advice to wives is six times longer than the instruction to husbands. And this is because the wife's role is way more difficult than the husband's. 
As a matter of fact, you may not really understand the cultural context because you see in the ancient world, if a husband became a Christian, it was not unusual for the wife and the family to follow their husband in the newfound faith, maybe reluctantly, but typically that was the case. It was almost unheard of for a person, particularly a wife, in the particular cultural context to switch some sort of religious sentiment. And if a wife did become a Christian, while her husband did not, it presented unprecedented problems. As a matter of fact, in Roman society and in Roman law, the husband and the father had absolute authority over all the members of his household. It was called pater, father, potestas, power, and it meant that the father literally had absolute rule and absolute reign over his wife, over the household, over the children. And that meant that if whatever, for whatever reason, if the father woke up one morning and decided that you were going to die, you would die. Now, we thank God that most fathers did not wake up on most mornings and order their wife executed or their children executed. There were powerful processes even then. God has placed within the heart of men and women a, a desire to love their family. And so, the problems that a wife faced with an unsaved husband was enormous. Joe Aldrich has written a book entitled Secrets to Inner Beauty, and in it he relates an old Arab proverb that states, quote, marriage begins with a prince kissing an angel and ends with a bald-headed man looking across the table at a fat lady. <laughs> Socrates told his students, by all means, marry, and if you get a good wife, twice blessed you will be, and if you get a bad wife, you can become a philosopher. It was Bishop Sheen who, in the 1960s, at the height of the women's liberation movement, was taking a bus, and he noticed that there was a lady who had her hand holding on to the strap, and so the bishop kindly um, invited her to take um, his seat, and she had a big t-shirt on that said women's liberation on it, and she said, why are you doing this? And the bishop said he didn't want to, you know, get into a Bible study, and so he just simply said, look, since I was a young child, whenever I've seen a woman with a leather strap in her hand, I have great respect for that woman. There are ancient cultural contexts, and there are current cultural contexts. And so when you see that expression, wives likewise be submissive to your husbands, likewise means in the same way that all citizens are to submit to human institutions, in the same way that employer, employees are to submit to their bosses, in the same way be submissive. It translates the word that has already been translated, hupo, taso, menomei. It, 
One Greek scholar, Marvin Vincent, says that it's used of submission or the ranking of servants. Vine says that the word was primarily military and it meant to rank in order. The phrase simply means that the Christian wife is to place herself under the authority, to place herself under the control, to place herself under the leadership of her own husband. And there's the rub. There's the rub. It rubs some people the wrong way. And in certain cultures, clearly in our own culture, this idea seems archaic or outdated or old-fashioned. Some go further and call the idea barbaric. And some people react with anger and hostility against the word of God and those who preach the duty of wives. All the passages in the Bible don't always meet with the approval of our flesh, our sinful and our fallen nature. And we sometimes react to a text because of what we think it says rather than what it really says. But it's okay. And we might as well ask the question that is boiling inside of some of your hearts. Are they right? Should we simply tear out this passage from the Bible and allow our popular culture to dictate our attitude and our actions? Thank God most Christians aren't willing to tear out the passage or blot out this particular portion of Scripture. But some will say, I'm willing to allow the text to remain, but I'm going to attempt to make it say, in fact, what it doesn't really say. And that's not helpful either. So what does submission mean? And by the way, when we've talked about submission of citizens to their government, when we've talked about citizen, uh, submission of employees to employers, remember it has always come in a qualified fashion. It has never been unqualified. What are those qualifications? Well, clearly, the qualifications include illegal or immoral behavior. Peter qualifies his own behavior. When he was addressed by the Sanhedrin, when he was arrested and beaten and ordered to not preach in the name of Jesus, it was Peter himself who said, you judge whether or not it is better for me to obey God or to obey you. So, does this mean submission to abuse? Or does it mean submission to tyranny? Or does it mean submission to slavery? Does this mean submission to attitudes and actions that suggest that women are inferior? And the Bible makes it abundantly clear. There's neither male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. That we all bear the image of God and that we are spiritually equal. But he's talking about marriage. And he's talking about what it's going to take in order to present a witness to a watching world. Remember what Peter has already argued. You as a Christian are supposed to be a model citizen. For what purpose? For the purpose of testifying to the reality of the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. You are to be a model employee. Why? To testify to the grace and the mercy that is in Jesus Christ. And now he's addressing the issue of wives and their husbands. And again, it's so that some 
who do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. In other words, Peter doesn't just simply begin with the argument, you should do this for the social order. You should do this for the institutional good. You should do this so that there's peace in the house. He begins from the premise of a witness to a person who is lost. And that's part of the point. The word submission was never intended to produce the fruit of rebellion. But when God calls all people to repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, people balk, people resist, people rebel. Now remember, submission has as its goal cooperation, relationship, and in certain instances, partnership. And by the way, whenever you have more than one person, a plurality of persons, leadership emerges. Even in the Godhead, the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits both to Father and Son. You'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus, choosing the path of selflessness and sacrifice and submission, he cries out to his Father and he says, If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Even in the Godhead, the Son and the Spirit are subordinate to the Father. Not inferior to the Father, but subordinate to the Father. And so God has ordained primary leadership. The Christian wife, in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, submits and subjects herself to her husband's leadership and authority and, yes, control. And clearly, submits and subjects herself doesn't mean necessarily to, again, something that is criminal or that is immoral. And so the person reading this might think, well, clearly... This can't mean leadership, authority, and control to an unbelieving spouse. And Peter writes, you're wrong. Even if the husband doesn't obey God's word, the wife is to subject herself to him. Clearly, the husband's refusing to heed God's word or obey God's word or trust God's word. In that circumstance, can an unbelieving husband make life miserable for a believing wife? And the answer is yes. As a matter of fact, this issue is already addressed in other portions of the scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, even Paul reminds the person who's married to the unbeliever that if your husband wants to remain married to you, remain married to him. It also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but if the unbeliever depart, let him go. Because God hasn't called you to bondage, but to peace. And he says that even if some who do not obey the word, meaning they haven't responded to the gospel, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. In other words, the wife's responsibility isn't to pressure or manipulate the husband into a relationship with God in Christ. In other words, the wife doesn't have some sort of obligation to put tracks under his favorite beer stein. Or... Put all of the stations in the car at KRKS or KGFT radio or what, you know, I'm going to put it on the Christian channel. Or it doesn't mean that this means you have to buy your unbelieving husband a Bible for Christmas. That's not 
the point that he's making. Once again, Peter reminds the wives of the far greater goal to win their husbands. And Peter reminds the wife that their godly submissive behavior matters. Living a life of purity and virtue and reverence. Demonstrating a quiet and a meek spirit that the chances of winning the husband are greatly improved. And so what does submission include? Peter begins by describing the way you live. Look at verse 2. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Now when Peter uses the term observe, when they observe, that means the husbands are seeing the wives' behavior. In other words, it isn't something that's taking place simply on the inside, but it's all outside. It's something that is taking place on on the inside as well as the outside. As a matter of fact, the word chaste is a very interesting word in the original language. It's the Greek word hognen. Now, in our culture, when a girl acts like a hag, good thing or bad thing? Bad thing. This is not the meaning of the word in the Greek language. We don't get the word nag or hag from that word. The word hagnen means pure. From all fault. And so when it says when they observe your chaste conduct, it means faultless behavior, pure behavior, clean behavior, holy behavior. It's talking about someone who is free from corruption or impurity. And so the idea is when a woman marries a man, she sets herself apart from the world. She makes herself available to her husband. Now again, the reference seems to be a physical, sexual, but also material kind of presence. She keeps herself clean and pure and available for her husband and only for her husband. The thought is reiterated when Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where it's giving instructions to wives that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, same word, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And whenever you see that expression in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, it always is wives submit to your own husband. It doesn't mean you submit to the next door neighbor's husband. Or even the husband of the guy who's sitting in back of you or in front of you at the pew. Because the implication is the intimacy of the relationship that it represents. That's the idea. So women are to live a virtuous life before all. And then they're to live a reverent life before God. That's what it means at the end of verse 2 when it says, accompanied by fear. Peter reminds the wife that her motivation is honor and reverence to the Lord. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that chapter 2 means when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. It means fear of your husband. That's not the point of the passage. It means fear of the Lord. So what does that mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? It must mean in part that we honor the Lord. We honor the magnificence of his being. We stand in 
awe of his holiness, of his power, of his justice, of his judgment. And this is what stirs her to live for the Lord. Because she is in submission and obedience to the Lord. She knows that God won't ask her to do anything and fail to provide for her the strength and the mercy necessary to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So no matter how inconsistent, no matter how sinful, no matter how wicked her husband may be, no matter how he may choose to, to dishonor or disrespect the Lord, she will honor and respect the Lord. The wife refuses to dishonor both the Lord and her husband. Not only because of the condemnation and judgment that disobedience invites, but because there is a sincere desire on the part of the woman to honor the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so the fear of the Lord and reverence for the Lord motivates her to subject and, and submit, but it is also the fear and reverence that attracts her husband and provides the vehicle for him to seriously consider the claims of Christ and win the husband to the Lord. And so Peter seems to indicate that the most powerful weapon that the unbelieving spouse has to contend with is the righteousness and the character and the witness of the particular person. In other words, wives, your most glorious asset isn't your hair and it isn't the car and it isn't the intelligence and it isn't how well you know the Bible. Your most glorious asset is the character of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit as it's revealed in your heart. And that's the point that Peter is going to make. Look in verse 3. He says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Now, in what other way might she submit to the Lord and her husband? Peter provides some answers. He says, by not dressing in a provocative way. Or by not dressing in such a way that she brings unwelcome attention. And the word adornment really is an accurate translation where it says, do not let your adornment. It was the same word that was used to describe in the Old Testament, Esther, as she puts on her royal robes as she appears before the king. It meant the arrangement of clothing upon the body. But the word also was way more than that. It wasn't just simply in the way you dressed, but it was also in the way you walked and the way you talked. It was in your behavior and your demeanor. The word is suggestive of the way a woman carries herself, the way she walks, the way she moves, the way she behaves in public. Peter's statement, do you really want to honor the Lord? Then Provide a strong testimony both to your husband and the watching world. Then understand something that the way you look is being evaluated by the Lord. In other words, here's what Peter's basically saying. What statement does your fashion statement make? Someone once told me something, something that I, I actually couldn't believe it. A woman said to me, do you know why women dress the way that they do? Stupid me, I said, well, so that they could look good? 
And she said, no, women dress the way that they do primarily to impress other women. And I thought, you're kidding me, right? No. But part of the point that Peter is making is that you dress not so much to impress your neighbor or your friends, but to impress the Lord. What does your statement make? Do you want to help people or seduce them? Do you want to serve people or destroy them? Do you want to point people to the lordship of Jesus or attract them to yourself? Now remember, women have always found ways to arrange their hair, both in the ancient world. They were lavish and amazing. Many of you know that I collect coins, and one of the things that I collect in ancient coins are portraits of women in the ancient world. And one of the things that you're going to find amazing about the portraits of the women in the, in the ancient world is these incredible ways that they would do their hair. They were amazing, the, the kinds of hairdos that they would embrace. And so don't misunderstand the statement once again, where it says, don't let your adornment be outward in the sense of, well, does this mean a girl can't do her hair? Does this mean that she can't wear jewelry? Does this mean that she has to only shop at Target for her clothes? No, this is not what it means. And it certainly doesn't mean what some people have said or, or believe that it means, that you can't wear jewelry or that you can't wear makeup because if that were the meaning, then you could also not wear clothes. And so clearly we understand that the Bible means that women should be clothed. Actually, the thing that puts it in perspective is the word merely. Now, it's inserted for our benefit, but it doesn't appear in the original language. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. The idea that Peter is doing is he wants to bring something to a contrast. He wants the way that you look to be in the foreground and the way that you are to be up close and personal. That's the idea. It can't mean don't wear clothes, don't do your hair, don't wear jewelry. Do you think Christians as an act of obedience should refuse to wear deodorant? Well, you know, it's really not natural to wear deodorant. After all, body odor is natural or supernatural if you're in mid-high. Should Christians refuse to use lipstick since the lips have a natural tint? Or should Christians wear plain clothes, even archaic clothes like the Amish who forbid the use of zippers? No, that's not the point that Peter is making. Peter's counsel is moderation, dignity, propriety. The point is not to wear clothes or hair or jewelry in such a way that you draw undue attention to yourself, most notably for the purpose of being immodest or impure or unclean. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul, writing to Timothy, says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. The point, not that women can't have a keen sense of fashion, but rather 
Is the way you dress, is it for the purpose of impressing the Lord or impressing others? And so he's going to point out, live a quiet and a meek life on the inside. Look what it says in verse 4. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. The point is that the hidden person of the heart is the inward you. He is basically saying the hidden person of the heart for the wife is the who you are on the inside. And what do you suppose a gentle and a quiet spirit looks like? Clearly, it carried the idea of humility, moderation, consideration. The point being that the woman who is disciplined and the woman who is controlled at all all times, she doesn't make the mistake of thinking that she's being disciplined or controlled by her husband. Listen carefully to what the text says. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. This discipline, this gentleness, this moderation, this consideration, this control isn't because she's manipulated by her husband. She's disciplined and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. Her desire is to embrace the character of Christ and manifest the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace. In Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, the psalmist writes and says, Be angry, but don't sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah, that means rest. Ladies, it's extremely difficult to display godly behavior when your husband is unwilling to lead or when your husband is unwilling to act in a godly fashion. Women are sometimes tempted to substitute secret manipulation for a quiet spirit. And these manipulations can take several forms. I know this is going to come as a shock to most men, but some women are capable of scheming. Pouting, sulking, bargaining, nagging, preaching, coercing, humiliating. It can't mean outrageous outbursts of anger or acting in a constant state of self-defense or ranting or raving or whining or complaining or assuming the role of a martyr because her husband refuses to honor and obey the Lord. When wives use these strategies... They're in effect admitting that God can't change their husband. When wives use these strategies, they're thinking that if they use that strategy, that's what will create the environment for change. Ladies, can you change your husband by whining, complaining, or assuming the role of a martyr? I know that some of you think you can, but it really doesn't work. You might slip every once in a while and go, I'm sorry, I I thought it would work, but I guess it doesn't work. A quiet spirit means a quiet and peaceful spirit. But remember again the emphasis. The emphasis is on the peace of God. It's peace with God 
And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, again, the issue isn't so much peace with your husband, although clearly I think wives want that. But it begins with peace with God. If you have the peace of God in your heart and peace with God, that quiet peace spreads throughout the household to your children, to your husband. When your heart is invaded and maintained and sustained by peace, guess what? Your house becomes a refuge of peace. Peter reminds the wives, you are responsible for you, not your husband. Now, some wives believe that God has either abandoned his job, and so it's their job to move where his job is, and so they assume the role of the Holy Spirit. And no offense, I've met many wonderful, beautiful, intelligent, incredible women But no one is smart enough and no one is wise enough and no one is good enough to assume the role of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, wives who trust the Lord Jesus Christ, who are secure in their spirit, will understand that submission becomes a mark and a sign of security. The believer who is in submission to Christ is secure in that submission. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, Yes, submission is a mark of security. It's not a spineless cringing based on insecurity and fear. It's a voluntary unselfishness, a willing and cooperative spirit that seeks the highest good of her husband. And he cites Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 12. As he observes her compelling behavior, the silent eloquence of a lovely life, his heart will eventually soften towards spiritual things. And so... Peter has encouraged the wives to analyze their actions in verses 1 and 2. To watch their adornment in verse 3. To check their attitude in verse 4. And he reminds them that external beauty is fleeting and temporary. Someone once said to me, look, you can't be blamed for the face that you have before you turn 50. But after you turn 50, the face that you have is all your responsibility. My pastor Chuck was asked the question, well, do you think women should wear makeup? And he said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. (laughs) Here's the point. External beauty is fleeting. It's temporary. Internal beauty is eternal and everlasting. Now I want you to think about what Peter's saying. One is attractive to the world. The other is attractive to God. And that's why Peter can write what Peter writes when he says, this is very precious in the sight of God. Because God sees the inside. He sees your heart. He sees your character. He sees your circumstances. And so again, 
One is attractive to the world, one is attractive to God, and one of the translations of verse 4 can be paraphrased not just incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. One translation has this a gentle tranquility. The idea being a type of composure and peace. And again, it describes a woman's most valuable, powerful, predictable asset, a godly character. And so in verse 5, look what it says. For in this manner, in former times, holy women who trusted God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. You might think, you're kidding me, right? This seems so old-fashioned. It seems so dated. It, it seems like it belongs in the ancient recesses of antiquity. And in a sense, you're correct. Because the topic of submission of a wife to a husband is as old as mankind. As a matter of fact, this isn't a new commandment. As a matter of fact, this is the repeated injunction that is given both throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Paul makes this the premise of his own argument that the reason why this is so is because God created man and then he created woman. Holy women have always subjected themselves to their husband. Unholy and rebellious women have always rebelled in every age. Holy women have always trusted the Lord. Not their hairstyle, not their clothes, not their jewelry. The ancient women were holy and beautiful, not on the basis of a perfect life or perfect looks, but because they hoped in the Lord. The writer of Proverbs chapter 31 verse 30 writes, Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so in verse 6, it says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, now you've really gone too far. Are you suggesting that from now on you have to call your husband Lord? Hey, look. Husbands, we'll get to your turn next week. My advice, just right like off the top of my head, is don't require your wife to call you Lord. Peter cites the example of Sarah. Why? Was she a perfect example of submission? Not really. The Bible records a few incidents where Sarah disobeyed in Genesis chapter 16, verse 2, and verse 6, chapter 18, verse 15. And I can hear a collective sigh of relief going, Whoosh. yeah. But the fact that she calls Abraham Lord speaks volumes about their relationship. Chuck Swindoll comments, quote, it shows that she respected him that she was attentive to his needs, that she cooperated with his wishes and adapted her, herself to his desires. It says, quote, 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, it must mean that she accepted his authority and that she accepted his leadership. And by the way, the verb tenses indicate a continuing response or a pattern of conduct. The idea is that she obeyed and then she continued to obey. Even when her husband did weird and wicked and stupid things, he went to Egypt when he shouldn't have, but she, kept, she obeyed and followed him. Abraham said to his wife, tell these people you're my sister. It doesn't say, she said, why? Because if she had said why, Abraham would have given her the reason, because you're hot. Now think about this, at the age of like 70, he was fearful that men would try and take her away from him. But here's the point. Sarah's submission isn't slavish. As a matter of fact, you'll remember that when Hagar and her son were sent away, Abraham certainly didn't like the idea, but he went along with the idea. And apparently God approved of Sarah's request and supported his answer to Abraham. <laughs> Genesis chapter 21, ladies mark it in your Bible. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. I wear the pants in my family. And each day my wife tells me which pair to put on. <laughs> Let's ask the question, why does Peter use Sarah as an example? Just as Abraham is considered the father of the covenant people, Sarah is considered the mother of the covenant people. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 51 verse 2, Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one. And I blessed him and made him many. Think this through. In what way was Sarah faithful? She submitted to God. She submitted to her husband. She had the child. This gave Sarah the title of mother of all who believe in Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. So what does it mean to be Sarah's daughters? It means to be heirs of the promise given to Sarah by God. By the way, all Jews identify themselves with Abraham as father and Sarah as mother. To be a daughter of Sarah was an honorable title because it meant that you were a woman who was willing to listen to God, believe God's promises, embrace God's promises, and live out God's promises for your life. And so that's the idea. To be a daughter of Sarah meant to do good and to refuse fear. The Christian woman's faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love for and faith in Jesus drives out fear. When we come to the end where it says, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror, Here's the point. Peter understands that this is a fearful thing. What are the ladies afraid of? 
Is it the physical harm that can come from the husband? Is it fear that, that might, but that by actually submitting to their husband, that somehow, some way, it's going to result in the wreckage of your life? Was it fear of possible consequences? Is it fear of participating in something wrong or participating in, in something evil? Is it the fear of persecution? Is it the fear of suffering? Is it the fear of being driven from your ancestral home? Is it what kind of fear is he talking about? Whatever else it means, it must mean the consequences that come from really placing yourself under the authority, under the control, and under the leadership of the husband. And it also must mean that their fear of God and their hope in God will allow them to reverence the Lord, verse 2, not fear, verse 6, their husbands. Peter counsels peace, but not peace at any price. The first priority of the Christian woman married to an unbeliever was always the lordship of Jesus Christ and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Peter is speaking to women who are living in tough circumstances with no legal support to protect them, no laws to help them, no culture that would forbid abuse. Peter's counsel and Peter's words to women and everyone who have to take a beating for their faith is to trust the Lord. This cannot mean that God expects women to accept physical abuse in marriage. And that doesn't mean that simply because there were no legal restraints and there were no cultural restraints in the ancient world that in the modern world husbands have the right to be cruel or abusive. Women who live with men who show a pattern of physical abuse have every right to withdraw to a safe place and receive help and protection. Here's been my experience. An abusive person will never be helped and an abusive person will never be saved and an abusive person will never be appeased by giving in to their abuse. A battered woman or a battered child needs help and needs love and needs support to recover confidence. And they need support to overcome fear and further abuse. Christian women in every generation and in every culture and in every society have had to face degrees of threat and intimidation and abuse. But Peter's reminding them there's grace for salvation. There's grace for submission. There's grace for, su for suffering. And the charge remains. The charge remains. We live on this earth to provide a testimony to the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the salvation that's found in Jesus. Next week, only one verse, but we will manage to fill up all of our time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we know why the instructions are so much more lengthy and so much more difficult. Because ladies have a tough job. And the tough job, of course, is not simply to trust you. Lord, most women realize that that's not difficult at all. Most women realize that you are a good God and a gracious God and a merciful God and an understanding God. Lord, you're perfect in your ways and you're perfect in your wisdom and you're perfect in your counsel and you're perfect in all that you've revealed. And Heavenly Father, we know husbands are far from perfect. They're far from being always just and always right. But Lord, we pray again, as men and women who love you, as men and women who know that their citizenship is in heaven, that Lord, that doesn't negate or cause us to neglect our responsibilities in this world to the people around us, to the world in which we live, to our places of employment, and in the sanctity of our home. Lord, we want to have a God-honoring and a Christ-honoring home. One that displays your love and your grace and your mercy. And so again, Lord, I pray for strength and wisdom and courage. Lord, grace for salvation. Grace for submission. Grace for suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.